0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Giwa. My guest on the podcast today, Patricia Welton, advocates for her two children with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. In this podcast, she tells the story of how the diagnosis was made and what led to an extraordinary journey in patient advocacy. Here to tell her story. Is Patricia Welton. Patricia, you're very welcome to this call. I'm thrilled to be spending time with you, my morning, your evening. Welcome to the Health Design Podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having
0: me. I know that you are a patient advocate, but I also know that your advocacy work was started when you discovered you had two very special children. How was the diagnosis made? What was that journey like for you?
1: Actually, Olivia was uh, sick from birth. Little things, failure to thrive. She had one of her, her, you know, her pinky finger was kind of unusual. Uh, Just a few, you know, we had to see a genetic counselor. But she seemed healthy otherwise and eventually started gaining weight. And and then when she was two, she developed these hyperpigmented macules under her arms, on her torso, uh, behind her, her knees. And it was really unusual. And I took her to her pediatrician, who had no idea what it was. And then he recommended we see a dermatologist. And I I went to several dermatologists, but the explanations they were giving me didn't make sense to me. So we ended up at Boston Children's Hospital. And that's where we saw the head of pediatric dermatology. And he said, your daughter has, this is when she was two and I was pregnant with my other daughter. Your daughter has hypermelanosis of ETO and he said i don't think it's going to affect her in any way it's just going to be the presentation you know she's, she's she'll grow and she'll just have the really appearance but nothing else so as she grew her feet were odd her hands were much more deformed as she grew but she still was doing great and she was actually a division 1 number 1 doubles player with deformed hands and feet so i didn't really think about it and then she had some issues with her, her back. She had really bad scoliosis growing up. And we were doing everything that they told us to do. She was braced up every night. We were doing everything. And they said they wanted to put rods in her back. And I said, I think there's something going on. She was born with a sacral dimple. And I said, I think there's something that with the issues with her spine might be have something to do with the sacral dimple she was born with. So they sent us to a neurosurgeon and she did a scan, and they found that my daughter had a tethered spinal cord. And because she had no other symptoms at the time, I attributed the tethered spinal cord to her diagnosis of HI. And shockingly, you know, she had the spinal cord surgery, and I was literally at her bedside, and it was around right after Rare Disease Day. And I said to myself, you know, my daughter's doing great. I can help the community, the rare disease community. I can give back. I was looking through the Rare Disease Day events and I was noticing that a lot of them were were by disease. And I thought, I'd like to do an event once a year in the state of Rhode Island. And then that way we can all get together because every time I met another rare mom, we instantly connected. There's something about meeting someone that this journey is so unusual that there's something about meeting someone else that's on this journey where there's an instant connection, like, like I've never had with other people. Uh, people just don't understand. If you haven't lived this journey, you, you don't understand it. Our first Rare Disease Day event, I think it was 2011, in February 2011, and we had 250 people drive through a blizzard to come to this event. It was a family event, there wasn't a lot of speakers, we had music, we had all kinds of things for the kids to do, and it was a huge success. And everybody was to, was able to connect with other people like themselves, where they hadn't been able to before. And then I was contacted by Senator Whitehouse shortly after that to work on the Expert Act, which was actually signed into law, where the FDA is allowed to use outside experts and parents, which is... I think, really important in this space to the conversation. And I started thinking to myself, wow, maybe we should start an umbrella organization where we work in every state. And we had a board, the chairman of our board at the time said, you know, I want to write this piece of legislation for a rare disease advisory council. And we all worked day and night making it the best that we could and we filed in Rhode Island, Mass, and New Jersey, and North Carolina. And we also started in the in the late end of this the art exhibit Beyond the Diagnosis. And we had other programs that I thought were great, but the state advocacy and the legislation were kind of absconded with by a larger rare disease organization and. I was left with no programs except for the art exhibit. So not one to give up easily, I started, continued with the art exhibit. In the meantime, my daughter was falling apart. My older daughter with HI was completely falling apart. And I'd been working in this space and I'd been to an EDS conference and I'm working in this space and I'm meeting people. And my daughter's teeth were falling out. She had TMJ. She had a really bad pain between her shoulder blades, which she was hospitalized for. And she had a whole team of doctors at Mass General, and nobody could figure out what it was. And then when they did a scan of a jaw, the radiologist called me and he said, your daughter has Chiari malformation. And I'm like, okay. So I started looking into Chiari, and I noticed that a lot of people with Chiari also had a tethered spinal cord. And they had hypermobility, and it was midnight. I remember, I'll never forget this night. It was midnight, and I called my other daughter downstairs, and I did the Bighton scale, which is a measure measure of hypermobility. And she got a nine out of nine. Now, at that time, she hadn't any hadn't had any dislocations, but she was she was a tennis player as well. I immediately took her out of tennis because it's the worst sport you can play if you have ehlers syndrome. And I'm the one that called the hospital and the team, and I was like, I think I think we're looking at Ellis danlos Syndrome. And they're like, oh my God, I think you're right, you know? And it turns out both of my kids uh, have Ellis danlos Syndrome. And it also explained a lot about my ex-husband. I used to call him Gumby. His fingers bent all the way backwards. I used to say, do you not have bones in your hands? Like, what's going on with your hands? And he said, we grew up so hypermobile, that he knew that his legs were hyperextended and he always kept them bent because he played a lot of sports and he was worried about getting hit and breaking his knees. So everything kind of fell into place. I used to say to him, we never should have had kids because I have allergies and you have asthma. And little did I know that the combination, it's definitely, inherited. his dad also had signs of ehlers down Syndrome, but I absolutely have mast cell issues. So those are the 4 comorbids of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Hypermobility, gastroparesis, mast cell activation syndrome, and POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So I was kind of ahead of the game. And also because we lived in Rhode Island, Rhode Island is one of the best places you can be with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. We have the best neurosurgeon in the world for tethered spinal cord. We have the best for EDS pain management doctors in the world. Two of the best physical therapists in the world, Olivia, was just an absolute mess. She needed pain meds. And then I started really researching Ellis danlos Syndrome. I can't let things happen to my kids. I just can't. You know, I will work day and night. So I started really researching Ellis danlos Syndrome. And I started my thinking, and it, it, I still believe this, is that it's rooted in the mast cells. and So I started looking at, I I believe, hypermobile type is an autoimmune type disease. So I started researching autoimmune diseases, and I found a study on MS where they were using a drug called clomastin, which was a 40-year-old antihistamine. They were using that to repair the myelin sheath in MS patients with chronic neuropathy. And I thought, my kids are on an antihistamine. I'm going to try this one we have issues with the myelin sheath. The first day my kids were on it, my daughter stopped needing payments. Half a daily dose. They took half a daily dose. And my other daughter whose pot symptoms were horrific. She was bedridden probably 7 to 10 days out of the month surrounding her period because hormones activate mast cells. So I started treat, treating it like a mast cell issue. And it was so helpful, the clomacin for my daughter with the POTS. Her POTS symptoms, she still has POTS, but she's not in bed for 10 days. She's not even in bed for one day. She still struggles. She's in college now and she is getting by, but it's hard for her. But it's so much better. And then I'm not sure if you're familiar, but there's a woman who also has Elders Danlos syndrome, and so do her kids. And she created the CUSAC protocol, Deborah Cusack. And I'm now good friends with her. And actually her daughter paints for us in the exhibit and she's a phenom, so, like her mom. So she created the CUSAC protocol and it was a lot of supplements that addressed the issues of Ellis danlos Syndrome. I would say they were in remission for eight years before she posted the protocol and she knew it was safe and that it was working. And so I started putting them on the protocol and the combination of the two, knock on wood, we haven't seen a doctor in five years for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. They're not perfect, but they're not in wheelchairs anymore. And I am beyond grateful to Deborah for her work in this space. And we've been very fortunate because I work in this space. I was able to have them sequenced, and they didn't find anything, which is not not uncommon in EDSers, but their journey has been, I mean, I find them remarkable. You know, I, I i don't know what it's like to be chronically ill. So, but I imagine that I would cry a lot and whine and be bitter. And my kids aren't like that. They're amazing fighters. My younger daughter had brain surgery and she missed two years of high school and the high school graduated her without telling her. She was a a straight-A student and she said she hadn't applied to any colleges. And she fought them and took them to the Rhode Island Department of Education. And she didn't have an attorney, but they had an attorney and she won. They were discriminating against her. She got her four classes and then they were not happy. They were not happy. I, I think they didn't want to provide her with services because she really was never gotten into any trouble. or So we couldn't really make sense of why they would do that. And so she, over the summer, had to take her SATs. And to make matters worse for them, she got a perfect score. So, you know, she not only did she come back, she came back gangbusters. And the the, the newspaper here in Rhode Island did a big story on her. And it was a really big deal. Super proud of her. My other daughter was blinded in one eye, and she finished her semester in the hospital. She was in the hospital for 13 days because they were trying to get shit a pseudomonas virus, and they were trying to prevent it from going to her brain. And they told her, you're going to be blinded in your left eye. She cried for a while, and then she said, I just want to do my homework. And she ended up finishing the semester from her hospital bed after learning that she was going to be blind in her left eye. So I find them remarkable. And of course, they are the reason behind everything that I do. I don't advertise like, oh, I research Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I research cell Activation Syndrome. So that's my mom job. So I don't talk about it a lot. But my other job is the art exhibit.
0: The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. I want to go back to this story because I'm still picking myself off the floor. You just told me that in Rhode Island, you have the best neurosurgeons, you have the best EDS pain management therapists, you've got the best of the best, yet the diagnosis took an awfully long time and it was down to you to make that diagnosis.
1: 18 years.
0: I'm struggling with that idea, Patricia. Tell me why that happens. Why do you think that happens? Why is it this this diagnosis is made so late?
1: You know, 18 years for Ellis danlos isn't bad. I mean, I know people that waited 50 years to get the correct diagnosis. I think it's more recognized now, but most people with Ellis danlos syndrome, it's not obvious. It's an invisible illness, and it's not obvious to doctors that these kids have Ellis danlos syndrome. Hannah's been accused of, you know, it's in her head. It's anxiety. There's a lot of gaslighting in the EDS community. There's just not a, there's not a lot of recognition and awareness, and the disease is not rare. Ehlers Danlos, hypermobile type Ehlers Danlos syndrome, is not rare at all. I would say it's more common than MS. I estimate there's probably 20 million people, mostly women, in the United States with Ehlers Danlos syndrome. So it's, to me, that boggles my mind. I think there needs to be more awareness that it's invisible. And we try to, when we did the exhibit, when we we represented Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, we tried to make a point of that. The girls that we chose to represent EDS look like they walked off the cover of a magazine, yet they are very sick. Shunts and surgeries and looks are deceiving with Ellis Danlos syndrome. In fact, people with Ellis Danlos syndrome look much younger than they really are. My kids look so much younger than they are. All the people I've met, I met a woman who was 40, I thought she was 18. You know, the only good thing about Ellis Danlos syndrome is your face doesn't age. Hypermobile type. So I think there's been a lot of failures along the way as far as Ellis danlos syndrome because there should not be this many people suffering without it not being recognized for how common it really is. But they're very close to finding a genetic marker for EDS, hypermobile EDS. So when I say EDS, I'm just going to, I'm talking hypermobile EDS because I don't know much about the other types of EDS. So we're getting there. I still don't think it should have taken this long, but I I think many, many, many patients are gaslit, and they're just not heard. And I think women have that issue anyway. And when you have something invisible and very, very complex, and a lot of stuff doesn't show up in testing, there's no definitive, okay, this is what's going on. They can't make sense of it. So they suffer. The, the, The community suffers. It's so hard.
0: You'd seen people who are well qualified to make a diagnosis of a rare condition. Oh yeah, and
1: there have been so many people that should have jumped on this immediately. So there were so many errors along the way, like Olivia had repeated ear infections and repeated sinus infections. And of course, we went to an otolaryngologist and they kept giving her tubes and they kept, they did two endoscopic sinus surgeries and they kept saying, Olivia has chronic sinusitis. Well, I want to know why. I'm not one to go like, okay, let's just keep doing this. Why does she have chronic sinusitis? We heard GERD. We had all these different things, and then I said, I think she has allergies. She wasn't presenting typically with allergies. I took her to an allergist and I said, let's do some testing, and they did, and she was off the charts. She was allergic to everything, and. They put her on an allergy regimen, and she never had another set of, set of tubes again. And she was deaf. By the time they they started putting tubes in her ears, she was already, I was standing behind her. She was deaf. So her speech was very, very delayed. I think a lot of the way my advocating for, for my kids is what's led to, if I had just sat there and said, okay, put rods in her back, we wouldn't have found out she had a tethered spinal cord. But I I just kept saying even though they had done an ultrasound on the on the sacral dimple I'd saying this is too coincidental for me that her spinal cord isn't growing correctly I mean her spinal column and she has scoliosis and that sacral dimple is linked to the spinal column and so even to this day and as bright as both my kids are when we go to a new doctor I make sure I go I think that we've been through a lot and. Olivia's blindness was Dr. Error, and so we've, we've been through a lot, and I make sure that I go with them, but I can't live forever, so they, they, I try to encourage them to use their voice, and they have to use it sometimes strongly. I have this one quote that I live by, and I say, the delay in diagnosis is not Dr. Ignorance, it's Dr. Arrogance. We need to be listened to. When it's your child, you'll spend a lot of time. And now we have access to so much information. I mean, I remember when she was born, and I'm going to totally age myself, but I I, I bought a, a medical book to look things up in uh, because there wasn't that much information at the time on the internet. But now I can get anything now I'm published on the internet. <laughs> you know, I can get any medical journals and
0: you've hit on a really, really important point here. And so I'm going to reflect this back to you as a medical educator and say that within medical school, when you're teaching medicine in a four-year program, you cannot teach everything. So there are 7,000 rare conditions, but there are 200 that are very, very common, and they are complex enough to start off with. So you've got to start medical education somewhere. So you get people to really master the 200 or 300 conditions that they are going to encounter on a very regular basis. However, one in 10 people have a rare disease. And as you say, there are 7,000 rare conditions. So, given that advocacy isn't something that everyone is comfortable with, and I think you're right, advocacy is the way to get the correct diagnosis in the end. Where... Is the ray of hope for future rare patients who cannot rely on Patricia Welton to stand up for them?
1: It would be great if we could pair people up with other people that could help advocate for them. Both of my daughters, it's hard for them to find their voice when they get in front of the doctor. It, it takes a lot. It takes a. It goes against everything that we've been taught our whole lives about the medical community, like that we we don't question, we don't. What what do we know? I'm sure you've heard the don't don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree. And I'm like, "Mm, maybe, (laughs) maybe I will. (laughs) Maybe somebody made a mug for me that said the opposite. Don't confuse your medical degree with my Google search because you know that I um, am published. That I discovered something no other scientist or researcher in the world did. Me and another mom, and now we're published. So now I'm a published, I call myself a citizen scientist. So I think I have, a, I have a right to have it. I think every parent that I've ever met in this space has a right to sit at the table and say, my input. Because you, do, you guys don't get the other side of what we see day in and day out. And I, if it doesn't fit into the mold of a certain disease, it doesn't matter. Both of my kids, even though they both have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, both of my kids have present present differently so you can't even compare within the same family wh- what's going to happen you, you need the input of the parents
0: and most doctors will tell you that to make a diagnosis you need a good history Well, you can't get a good history unless the other person is able to provide you with that history and it has a space to provide that history and in fact now can also incorporate what they know with what you know to tell you what the yes. diagnosis is, which is in the new world that we live in. And no one's arguing that that's a good thing. I want to now go yes. to a quote that's on your signature block. And I want to explore this a little bit with you. And you say, any form of art is a form of power. It has impact. It can affect change. It can not only move us, it makes us move. And this is from Ozzie Davis. Tell me about yes. that. Why why that particular quote and what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think that what we've seen with the art exhibit, I think it's first of all, I think it's very hard for people to talk about rare diseases, to discuss it with anybody. They don't understand. I can see they kind of their eyes glaze over when I start to talk about rare diseases. They think it's uncommon because rare diseases, they think It's not going to happen to them. It doesn't have anything to do with them, and it never will. So because Olivia's diagnosis took so long, I wanted to be in the medical schools, and I wanted to do it in a way that was humanizing these kids. And it had to be the medical schools. Like, at the time, I thought, we're only going to medical schools. I want to reach these young, soon-to-be doctors. This is who I want to get to. And... No idea. I, I recently, that, that that quote went up about, I don't know, a year ago, because the reaction to the exhibit, both from the medical community, the re- research institutes around the world, from the the community itself, and most importantly, from people in general who otherwise would not engage with the rare disease community, become engaged. And that's what that quote, like, I want artists to know and i i I tell them all the time and i send messages to everybody and i i don't think i adequately express how much they have done for the rare disease community we spent this past month in times square on a jumbotron the portraits and we just found out yesterday they estimated 4.4 million people were in that space during that month we just put up facts or graphics, or something like that. Nobody would have looked at it, but artwork is something that so many people engage with, even people that really don't go to museums or whatever. When they, they see these kids, I've had people come into my gallery, old men, really young men, people you wouldn't expect to burst into tears when they see all these beautiful faces surrounding them, and they're so moved by it. And that quote to me just says everything that needs to be said about beyond the diagnosis. That it's doing everything that it was meant to do. And I think also part of that, and I feel like the the artists that are involved, the ones that they come back over and over again, and even when they don't come back, they stay connected to us. Um, it's magical. It, it's like they've their love and their, Adoption of these orphaned disease kids, it's created this otherworldly, supernatural love power thing that I think just can't be ignored. Um, it's, it's magic, I can't explain it because it's not me. I'm doing the grunt work, I'm doing the work, but it's not me. I, I, people try to, oh, you, you know, what you do, you're you just, I'm like, I. I haven't put out a press release this whole time. We've had, we were on CBS Sunday morning. We had 7 million viewers. I didn't put out a press release. They found us. Like most of the media that we have, they found us. So how do you explain that? It's magical.
0: What the artists do is they draw pictures of these children with these rare conditions and capture something of their spirit in these pictures. Is, yes. that, is that what, what happens?
1: That's exactly what they do. They ask me, they want to know everything they can about the child. If the you know, a lot of times rare parents will start Facebook pages for their kids or, you know, blogs and they follow them. I call them stalkers. I connect them on Facebook on my private page. I connect the families with the artists, and they become forever connected and friends and and rejoice in in, in what they're doing and what the kids are doing and I think artists I just the nature of artists their willingness to to give to this cause it keeps me going because you know things have been hard the past few years but I go just go to the gallery all you do is sit in the gallery and everything's okay
0: what do the kids think of their pictures oh god they love them um
1: that's my favorite part of the exhibit is when the kids get to see their portraits we have a little girl. I'm going to tell this story. I might cry, but I'm going to tell it anyway. We have a little girl with Sturge-Weber syndrome. They have the Port Weinstein. And her mother said to me, you know, we have catalogs, all the kids are, and we send them to the, the families. And so she has the catalog and she's brought it to school. And when she was on the Jumbotron, she went to school and she was like, and her mother was saying, she used to be ashamed of her Port Weinstein, and now she's proud and And it's what? That's so amazing. You know, like, you know there are other things that happen aside from education that have been remarkable for this exhibit, and I just feel so grateful to be part of this. I mean, I know it was my idea, but I didn't think it was gonna, this was going to happen. It's been a journey, and I, I hope to do it for a very long time to come. I'm trying to hook one of my kids into cubs because I, I just am so, I always wanted to be in the family, and but they have other ideas. They want to do their own thing, which is great. I, you know, I'm happy for them.
0: The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, Growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. What do your artists think of the the work? Do they enjoy it? Do they do they sign up for more portraits? What is what happens? Oh yes,
1: absolutely. Generally, they do one. We just did somebody in England, and she did one portrait. She said, "I want to do two a year." I was like, "They're just they're here," and these artists from all over the world. You know, we have artists in Thailand, Bali, Poland, Russia, like all over the world. They're all over the world. And I just got a message from another artist in England who he had dropped out for a while. And then I saw him at an event we did in England. And he had never been to an event. So he didn't know what we do. And he was so moved. And he said, I want to do more. I want to do another one. And he just emailed me yesterday and said, I completed the one I was working on. And let me know when you're ready to send me something else. And he said, I forgot how amazing it is to sit at an easel and, and to to paint for this cause. Which, you know, some of these artists write um, poems for these kids. They We had an artist that called me one time and she said, I want to buy Victor a toy truck for Christmas. Will you ask his parents if it's okay if I have their mailing address and I did, and the parents called me after Christmas and they said it was a truck he could drive it wasn't it was a little it wasn't a little toy truck it was a truck he could drive so yeah, it's really crazy. We have one artist he's done nine well, he wants to do them all the time, and I'm like, you can't you know you can't and we're we're really good friends I've known him for a very long time but He's always like, can I can I do another one? I'm like, you need to, you know, you can't do them all. Because I think part of the charm of this exhibit is the different styles. You see, they're completely different. And I love that. You know, I love that. There's so many cool, different ways of, of capturing these kids. But, yeah, they're very committed. And a couple of them we got to see in New York when they went up to see their portraits on the, the Jumbotron. And, and the families went. That was really exciting. And right after Rare Disease Day, right after all of this amazing day in and day out, we were published. And I was like, this can't get any better. I've been working on tethered spinal cord research for, I don't know, four years. I think it was four years when Annette and I first started. And we finally got our work published. And in the American Journal of Medical Genetics, and all at the same time. I'm like, no, the rest of the year is going to be terrible. <laughs> it's, but it's turning out to be great.
0: <laughs> What's really moving about this is that some of the spirit of these children infect the artists so that they're moved and they see things that we need to see on those pictures.
1: A- absolutely absolutely and there's some artists that this is their only cause is rare diseases which is amazing so yeah it they i mean we had an artist the artist from bali he started with salvador dali and he flew here from bali to bring us the portrait i am i'm am blown away uh, by the commitment of these artists to these kids and i think it's a match just a perfect match you know what started out as something small has turned into. Now we're working. We just got a, an application from Romania. And I was like, how did they hear about us? <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it's it's pretty, it's humbling and exciting and gratifying, and and
0: emotional. You know. And be, behind all of this is a very special person, Patricia Welton. It's, it's been a joy spending time with you and we wish you all the very best. And I look forward to our next conversation.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.